there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Someone handed me a slip of paper with a poem on it, written by Amy Carmichael, asking that I read you this poem. I am very happy to, because it's one of my favorites of hers, and it's one that both Jim Elliot and I had memorized when we were college students. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar, on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master must the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? And the title of my talk is The Cost of Forgiveness. My husband and I had the opportunity one time to try to steer a man away from the precipice of divorce. It was very obvious to us that the marriage was in trouble. We didn't have opportunity to talk to the woman, but we did have many, many times when we had the chance to talk to this man. And again and again and again, we would try to get him off talking about what she did and what she wouldn't do and what she said and get him to focus on what God said he was supposed to do. In other words, the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What kind of love is that? Sacrificial. It is totally laying down your life for somebody. And it's very obvious that there could never possibly, by any stretch of the imagination, be a divorce if both people would be willing to totally lay down their lives for the other. And probably it would rarely, if ever happen, if only one person really did that. However, that was all we talked about. We didn't allow him to go on and on about all the awful things that his wife had done and said and failed to do. But the bottom line for him every time was, well, until she, you know, how am I supposed to love her as Christ loved the church if she doesn't submit to me? How am I supposed to do this and that and the other thing if she so-and-so? And until she. Well, finally, one day he came to us. He said, well, he said, we're just going to go ahead and get the divorce. And she has made out a list of the possessions. And he had the list in his hand. She had made a list of all their possessions in two columns, his and hers, and check marks on all the things that she thought were hers and check marks on the things that she thought were his. Well, there were very few things that she thought were his. And some of them he claimed as, as his, you know. So he argued about this and just went on and on about how in the world could she possibly say this is hers and, you know, we bought this in such and such a place or I made this or whatever. So my husband said to him, look, why don't you just take the list and forget it, hand it back to her and say, it's all yours. Any contributions will be gratefully accepted. 
And, you know, he scratched his head and he thought, well, maybe that's a good idea. Obviously, he's not going to argue her into changing her mind. And maybe it would disarm her if you did the outrageous thing, the absolute point of departure, and just in love said, it's all yours. Take it all, if you like, with just a tiny little bottom line. If there's anything that you want to contribute, I'll be glad to receive it. Half an hour after he left, he was to meet us at church. He was late getting to church because he had gone home and they had a huge argument over the list. Obviously, there was no absolute point of departure in his kind of love. There was no radical abandonment of his viewpoint, his reasonings, his mindset, his urge to protect his position. We hadn't gotten through point one, and that was the sad story, and they got divorced, both are remarried, and it's just heartbreaking. Point one, under the cost of forgiveness, we must introduce a new force. Forgiveness is a new force, and when you forgive someone, you are introducing a new force. Our natural bent, our temptation is always to assert ourselves, because after all, we can always think of ways in which we are in the right, the other person is in the wrong, they have absolutely no business doing this, it's wrong, it's outrageous, but instead of that, we offer the astounding offering, the outrageous one, and we introduce the new force, which is self-abandonment, not self-assertion, but self-abandonment, selflessness. Now, there is nothing new about self-assertion. How far back would you say it goes? The Garden of Eden. Because God said, there's only one tree in this garden that I don't want you to touch. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it, oh, God didn't say you can't touch it. He just said, if you eat it, then you will bring death and destruction. You will surely die. And as you know, Satan came along with a more powerful argument, Eve thought. And he said, did God say that if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die? You won't die. You not only won't die, you can upgrade your lifestyle. Because what did Eve Eve want? She wanted to be like gods, like a god. She wanted to be a god. God had created Adam and Eve to be human beings. And that is a few cuts below. You know, there is a hierarchy in the universe. And this is a word that feminists spew out of their mouths. They can't stand the idea of of hierarchy. But hierarchy simply means an arrangement or an order. And God is at the top. Then we have... Cherubim, seraphim, archangels, angels, and a little lower than the angels, the Bible says, man. And Jesus, who was God at the very top of the hierarchy, made himself not only lower than the cherubim and the seraphim and the archangels, but lower than the angels. And he became a man. And he was willing to be a man, and he did not think that equality was something to be grasped at. Another one of those words that's become part of Christian vocabulary, equality. It's a political term. Well, Eve decided that God was trying to cheat them out of the one thing that would make them truly happy. 
here's God giving them the whole beautiful garden with everything that's pleasant to the eye and fruit and sweet to the taste. God had provided a perfect place for a perfect man and a perfect woman. But God abdicated his own authority to the extent of giving them a will. Now, you see, the wind doesn't have a will of its own. The tides don't have a will of their own. The birds and the skunks and the clams and the crocodiles do exactly what God made clams and skunks and birds and crocodiles to do. They obey God. They glorify God by being a crocodile, if that's what God made him to be. But God made man in his own image, which means he had the choice to will to obey or to will to disobey. An amazing evidence of God's grace that he would so limit himself and create a creature capable of flinging its fist in his face and saying no to God. So Adam and Eve asserted themselves, Eve asserted herself, went ahead, ate the fruit, nothing happened, she didn't die. She goes to Adam and persuades Adam to eat the fruit as well, and Adam, who was supposed to be the husband, which means the protector and the provider and the cherisher, just flaked out and said, fine, if that's what the little lady wants, that's what we'll do. So self-assertion took over and death and destruction came as a result. And we live in a fallen and a broken world, a world full of selfishness, a world full of sin, and we want to be instruments of peace in this world where there's hatred, so love. And that takes selflessness. Well, there's nothing new about selflessness either. Jesus showed us the way. It's a very rare quality, but we have seen and heard, and as John said, We tell you the things that we've seen and we've heard and our hands have handled. And he talks about love. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. That's from 1 John 3.16. Most of you know John 3.16, which is from the gospel. But 1 John 3.16 is in the epistle. And it is the corollary of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then this is how we know what love is. That Christ laid down his life for us. And we, in our turn, are to lay down our lives. Do you expect that this is ever going to be a popular message? It wasn't in Jesus' day. They hated him because of it. It has never been since. And it seems to me that things could not be more diametrically opposed than they are today with the very powerful self-love movement. You cannot abandon yourself and love yourself at the same time. You cannot work on your self-esteem and also be crucified with Christ at the same time. It's just, they're mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. So we, we must, as we forgive somebody, we are introducing a new force, which is selflessness, not justice, We're not talking about justice when we forgive somebody. It has nothing to do with justice. God is just. And you can rest assured that that person who has hurt you, that you have to forgive, God will deal with in his own way. Vengeance is mine, he says, never ours. Everything in us wants to get back at somebody, doesn't it? We just want to 
let that person know what they've done and how badly they've hurt me. And so I'm going to stab them when I, whenever I can think of a chance. It's not justice. It's a creative freedom to forgive. I am free from my own reactions, from myself, from my viewpoint, from my reasonings, from my mindset, from my position. I am delivered from that by the grace of God and by his forgiveness to me. And I offer in place the opposite. Now, love, here's another definition of love. It is the intention of unity. You hear people say, well, we were in love when we got married, but we're not in love anymore. It's all faded away. What they mean by that is just a very weak, sentimental emotion, a romantic notion that some people who get married experience before they get married. Some people never experience at all. But almost any married couple can tell you that no marriage is going to survive on that kind of romance. It is love in the real sense, which is the intention of unity that lasts. And where there is the intention of unity... There can be forgiveness. The only reason that I am to forgive primarily is because I am commanded to forgive. And God has told us that if we don't forgive others, we will not be forgiven ourselves. And that is a solemn warning, isn't it? A young woman called me one day on the phone and she said, Elizabeth, you got to tell me what to do. She said, so-and-so, who used to be my closest friend, has just called me up and asked me to be godmother to her daughter. She said, do you think I should accept that after what she did to me? And she proceeded to tell me what she did to her. And the whole relationship between two couples had just completely disintegrated over these things that had happened. And now she says she has the cheek, she has the brass to call me up and say, would you be godmother to my daughter? What do you think I should do? Well, I said, I Certainly don't know whether you're supposed to be godmother to her daughter. That's not my province, but I can certainly tell you what you are supposed to do about what she did to you. And she said, you can? And I said, yes, you're supposed to forgive her. And, of course, I heard the explosion on the other end of the phone. After what she did to me, did you hear that story? Were you listening? I mean, you expect me to forgive that? And I said, now, you're a good Catholic. I said, you know the Our Father, and the Our Father is what we call the Lord's Prayer. We Protestants. And it says, forgive us our trespasses as we, what? Forgive those who walked all over us, who trespassed against us. In other words, the measure of forgiveness that I am prepared to offer to that person is exactly the measure and no more that I'm expecting God to give to me. Have you forgiven her totally, completely, gladly, forever? What you want from God is total, complete, glad, forever forgiveness. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who did whatever to us. And if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, Jesus said, neither will my father in heaven forgive you. That ought to scare us. If I refuse forgiveness for five minutes, I don't know if I have five minutes left in my life I could drop dead neither will my father in heaven forgive you it is my obedience that is the real indication of my sincerity and my desire to serve God and to love God as the Bible also says if you don't love your brother whom you've seen how in the world are you going to love God whom you haven't seen 
And we have a wonderful time singing songs about how much we love God. And we've been singing them here, just on and on and on, how much we love the Lord and how much we praise him and we worship him. But it's hollow in God's ears if we are reserving the right to unforgiveness against somebody. Neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. Love is the intention of unity. Now, how do I measure the validity of my intention of unity? How sincere am I? How real is that intention? It sounds plausible, sure. But then test yourself by the length that you're willing to go to to identify with your neighbor or with your enemy. How far am I prepared to go to create unity between myself and that person? That will be the measure of my sincerity. Intention of unity, that's just a nice vague principle up there. It's a nice little concept, isn't it? Sure, we can scribble that down in our notebooks. But, oh, wait a minute. If I have to go out of my way, give her my coat if she took my cloak, um, give whatever in contrast to what that person has dished out to me, that will be the measure of my sincerity and my honesty before God. Remember the story of Appomattox. It wasn't actually at Appomattox, but it's in that book. The ceasefire took place because the enemy respected the enemy's flag. It was the astounding offer, the second mile. They could have popped off a few more of the feds, and they stopped firing while those two brave men went out and picked up the flags. Imagine our friend allowing his wife to walk off with everything. If he had said, it's all yours, any contributions gratefully accepted, and she took the whole thing, how would he feel? Well, you know how he would feel. You know how you'd feel. What is the measure of your intention of unity? Who knows? I mean, if he had totally abandoned himself, I think the marriage could have been saved. Because a man who totally lays down his life for his wife is going to disarm a lot of her hatred. Now, we all know that Jesus laid down his life for us, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not. So we cannot necessarily guarantee. But the point is, when we stand before God, he's going to ask us what we did, not what she did, or not what he did. I'm not going to be responsible. And this is one of the things that we said to this man again and again. When he keeps saying, but she, well, she, until she. And we would say, God is not going to ask you about her. God is going to say, did you love her? As Christ loved the church. And let's turn it around now because we're all women here. God is not going to ask you if your husband loved you as Christ loved the church. You know he didn't. Because there isn't a man in the world that's ever done that perfectly. Christ is the only one that loved us perfectly. And you're married to a sinner. Do you ever think about that? You've had plenty of evidence of it, haven't you? (laughs) But when you think about the fact that you're married to a sinner, please don't forget what he's married to. (laughs) There isn't anything else to marry. (laughs) Point two. Forgiveness always means loss. Will you accept loss? I'm going to read to you a story that's in this book, A Path Through Suffering. 
because I can't remember to tell it as well as it's on paper. One who's about to become a grandmother wrote to me of her love longing for the unborn child. But the love is pierced with pain for the mother-to-be, her daughter-in-law, refuses to have anything to do with her. The grandmother is about to die over this. Will she not be allowed to see the child, to rejoice with her son and daughter-in-law? Will she be denied the bliss of holding the baby? I know a grandmother who endured precisely that kind of pain for a long time, so I asked her if she would answer the letter. What she wrote applies so exactly to so many different kinds of suffering that I asked her permission to use the letter. This is her letter. I will distill some of the principles that kept me from going under. In no way think any of these were done easily or that I am taking a simplistic route. The road you are on is excruciatingly painful and in many ways will be a means of identifying with Christ in his sufferings of rejection. Colossians 1.24, it is now my happiness to suffer for you. This is my way of helping to complete in my poor human flesh the full tale of Christ's afflictions still to be endured for the sake of his body, which is the church. And that is from Colossians 1.24. She says, it's one of the most powerful statements on suffering in this regard, I think. God is intensely interested in forming Christ in our character, and we can assume that he's going to do this in you and your dear daughter-in-law. So, number one, thank him over and over and over again for what he's doing through this experience. Now, you haven't got time to write down all that, but you can down, write down, one, thank him. Two, sing about his mercies and greatness. The enemy would like to destroy your family and your joy, all you have invested, and all your hopes for the future. Second Chronicles 20, 1 to 30, tells a wonderful story. Their families were about to be destroyed. Read it carefully, and you will see how they were afraid, they sought the Lord, they did not need to fight, They were not to fear or be dismayed. Singers were appointed to go ahead of the warriors. Isn't that amazing? Singers were appointed. Didn't make it. They didn't. They weren't asked whether they felt like singing in this situation. (laughs) They had to. They were appointed to go ahead of the warriors in the most vulnerable position. The singers were in the most vulnerable position. They were to sing of the mercies of God, not of the enemy. Why mercies? Because they weren't any better than the enemy. And they were saying, we don't deserve to live, but we are children of the Most High God. We are totally dependent on his mercies and his love. When they sang, the Lord sent ambushments and victory victory came. Sing while you are vacuuming. Sing while you are cooking, walking, driving, trying to go to sleep, showering. Decide to sing. Declare to those in the heavenlies that your God is able to deliver. Satan will fear. His minions will fear. And this friend of mine is a great singer, and I've been, I've stayed in their home when I've heard her and her husband singing in bed in the morning. (laughs) And my husband and I sing in bed sometimes at night, not very often in the morning. We get up slightly different times sometimes, but anyway, she sings all the time. She has a lovely voice and she plays the piano too, but she said she really believes that Satan hates real music. Satan loves noise, he loves volume, but he does not like real music. So concentrate on your reactions to her, on your reactions to her, and not on what she is doing. At the present, you are in bondage to her. You can get free of this bondage. Perhaps you'll need to get free before she can get free herself. So when she does something against you, or you feel her intense dislike, 
immediately your natural response is fear, hurt, dismay, sadness, anger, or wishing she were dead. Now then, take that response and go to the Father. Father, I confess my resentment. I repent of my sin. Please forgive me. Please forgive her. I receive your forgiveness based on your words. And then accept his forgiveness. Then make a list of the grievances. Go through this simple prayer over each incident. Please forgive me for my reaction. Please forgive her. And then tear up the paper. God himself will begin to act on your behalf and hers. She needs you and you need her. Blessings on you, dear one, and bon courage. French, which means good courage. I know the end of that story. It worked. And that mother-in-law has a very, very close relationship with her daughter-in-law, and she has been permitted to see that, to hold the baby, to have them over and everything. But I think it was a long, it was it was many months after that child was born before that grandmother was allowed near him. So God has all sorts of ways of enabling us to forgive. And the grandmother, of course, became the instrument of peace because she had the intention of unity. Instead of just saying, well, if that's the way she feels about it, I don't need her anymore in my life. Intention of unity pursues. Love pursues. How many of you have ever read Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven? Wonderful poem. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in a mist of tears, the whole poem is about a man trying to get away from God. And God is like a hound with deliberate speed, majestic pace, majestic instancy, those feet followed after. And finally, he, in his absolute desperation, when he's cornered in a dark place, he looks up and he says, is my gloom after all shade of thy hand outstretched, caressing me? We have to follow our Lord in that. And just pursue and pursue and pursue. But you start with thanking God for what he's going to do, singing about it, confessing our own reactions, which you know are wrong. And that means loss to begin with. It is an outward act originating in an inward transfiguration, an outward act originating in an inward transformation or transfiguration. Do you desire to know God, to be an instrument of peace, and to have fellowship with another person who has hurt you? You can't do it. You can't make the outward act without the inward transformation. And that comes through surrender, trust, and acceptance. I say no to myself, no to my rights, no to the pleasure of being vindicated. Who of us has not experienced the pleasure of having somebody come and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Doesn't happen very often, does it? But when it does, we can just sort of think, I was right all along, and then, of course, we need to confess that to the Lord. (laughs) So, But when we forgive somebody who has never said, I'm sorry, then we are relinquishing, we are losing the privilege of being right in their eyes. Very often, it's a case where the person either doesn't have the slightest idea that they have hurt you, or they couldn't care less. So they're not going to do anything about it anyway. 
So you have to deal with God about this thing and offer them forgiveness and lose yourself, lose your right to an apology, lose your right to vindication, lose your right to be known to be right. And we not only, if you're anything like me, and I suppose there are a lot of you that are not, thank God, but when we feel very sure that we are right, we would like to be known to be right. I don't want to just be right. I want to be known to be right. I want people to recognize that I'm right. Who likes to be wrong? I mean, nobody likes to be wrong, do they? I've had people say to me more than once, well, you just have to be right, don't you? And I thought, well, is there anybody that has to be wrong, that wants to be wrong? I mean, we want to be right. But we give up our right to the apology, to the vindication, to public opinion, perhaps. If you forgive that person, you may be criticized because other people won't understand And maybe they've suffered from that same person and they think, well, why in the world would you forgive that person? You know, I'm not going to forgive him. So public opinion is against you. But those are things that we treasure, which we are prepared to lose for Christ's sake. Forgiveness means loss. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God, who had given his son and the son was killed, was in Christ when Christ was on the cross reconciling the world, the hound of heaven, following, following after. That's what he does for us. And you remember the taunt that was flung at him as he hung there on the cross. He saved others. Himself, he could not save. Words of scorn and derision, but absolutely true. He could not save himself and save me. It was one or the other. What did he choose? And I cannot save myself and save that person. And, of course, we're using the word save in a different way. But I have to lay down my life. I have to lay down my rights. I have to lay down my feelings about it. He saved others. Himself he could not save. And I'm sure that there must have been some people standing there at the foot of the cross, contributing to the derision and probably saying when they heard the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. That's sick. Doesn't make any sense, does it? The mind stops short when we think of these things. But we have the mind of Christ. Christians have the mind of Christ. So I pray that God will give me his mind. Give me his view of this thing. Give me his spirit of love, intention of unity, and forgiveness. I have to extricate myself from the worldly business of self-defense and self-vindication. I have to pray, Lord, extricate me. Help me. Because we can't do these things alone. Please don't get the impression that I'm saying anything that we can do naturally. But God will help us. The Lord God will help me. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And that's from Isaiah 41.10. I think it was um, Fenelon, that 17th century French priest who was the spiritual director of Madame Guillon. Some of you are familiar with Madame Guillon. He said, Repentance is not vexation with ourselves, impatience, wounded pride, self-pity, excitement, and disappointment. 
if we can work up all those emotions, which is not probably too difficult, vexation with ourselves, impatience, wounded pride, self-pity, excitement, disappointment, that's not repentance. Repentance is the leaving behind of all those things. And someone else has said, you will be great before men in proportion as you are lowly before God. Another thing that comes through in the book that I've mentioned, The Stillness at Appomattox, is the figure of Abraham Lincoln, who was the president at that time, as you know. A man lowly before God. If you've ever been to the Lincoln Memorial, take time to read the second inaugural address, a tremendous lesson in prayer. He said, Lord, there are godly men on both sides. You could not answer the prayers of both. There's one of those mysteries. And Lincoln himself was always praying, asking God to bring the right to bear. And number three, forgiveness means, it always means eternal gain. Point two, it always means loss to the self. Point three, it always means eternal gain. Now, I want to tell you just a silly little story. It's just the silliest kind of a little illustration, but I think there's a point here. When Valerie and I lived in the jungle, um, we had a bunch of, we lived with the Quechuas for more years than we lived with the Indians called the Alcas. And one day, one of the Indian men was doing some painting at my house, and he had the bucket of paint on the ground, and he had his little two-year-old playing around there. Well, of course, it wasn't very long before I heard this Indian man saying, which means, oh, no. (laughs) I looked out to see what this was about. And this little boy had his fist down in the bottom of the paint can. And, of course, it went up above his elbow, practically. And so, of course, the father went over, grabbed a hold of the arm and started to pull it out. And the little kid just screamed his head off. And he just he would he did not want to be extricated from that paint. And finally, the father asked him why he was screaming so loud. And the little boy said because he had a piece of manioc in his hand and he wanted to eat that manioc. He was afraid if his father took him took him out of the paint can that he would take away the manioc. Well, of course, the manioc wasn't going to be edible anymore. Now, the point I'm making is that he had a tenacious grip on something which was utterly useless and harmful while his father was ready to give him a new piece of manioc. And you and I have this urge to clutch things. Yes, I'll give this and this and this to God, but I cannot give him this. And he's standing there waiting for us to open our fingers so that he can give us something better. Because anything that we lose for Christ is going to be repaid, he tells us, a hundredfold. Nobody who has lost anything for my sake, he says, will not be repaid a hundredfold. So when we think about sacrifice, you know, the word just becomes almost meaningless. I mean, what kind of a sacrifice is it if you gave somebody a dollar and he gave you a house for it? I mean, you lost your dollar but you gained a house, and God is always out-giving us. There isn't any possible way that we can outgive him. So forgiveness is the offering of my gift of forgiveness to somebody else, and God, in his turn, gives me eternal gain. He is in the business of giving, of pardoning, 
And as it says in that prayer of St. Francis, teach us not so much to seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Just a glimpse at some of the rewards. There's so many passages that I might give you, but let me give you Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. The accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't be afraid. Fear only him who can cast both soul and body into hell. And the only one that can do that is God. So he offers us these unspeakable rewards. Note that the cost is the reward. The cost was their lives. And because of that, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and they receive honor and glory in heaven. And one more passage from Revelation 21, verses 6 and 7. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. Can we think of any rewards greater than that? To be given the water of life is one thing, but that he should be my God and I should be his child, that is the greatest reward of all. And those exchanges are far better than anything you could ever win in the lottery. People spend thousands and thousands of dollars on the lottery in Massachusetts. I presume you have one in California. Um, Billions of dollars it amounts up to. And every now and then somebody hits the jackpot and so it, it validates the reasoning of everybody else. You know, they always think, well, there's always that possibility. But even if you did, if you do win the jackpot, this is a crude illustration. If you bought a 50 cent or a dollar ticket and you won a million dollars, that's kind of like when we give up our right to ourselves and forgive somebody. So let's remember that the cost of forgiveness may seem very great at the time, but it is minuscule by comparison with the rewards. Introduce a new force. That's point one. Secondly, it always means loss, but only in terms of temporal things. And number three, it always means gain in terms of eternal things. So I would earnestly urge you, if any of you are carrying around the heaviest baggage in the world, which is bitterness and resentment and cherishing your pain instead of offering it to God, refusing forgiveness, that before you leave this place, sometime, I would hope, before you go to bed tonight, you will relinquish that to God. Then and only then can God make us ministers 
instruments of his peace. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.